The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. When you're trying to do journalism, then you have to kind of run out and make sure you can pay your reporters that week or next month. That's, uh, that's a tough thing. For some years now, local news organizations have been feeling the pinch. Their audiences have moved online, and advertising revenue, which used to pay most of the costs of the journalism, has gone elsewhere. A lot of those dimes are going to the so-called duopoly of Facebook and Google. Belt tightening and budget cutting have reduced the quantity and quality of local reporting. And all over the country, news operations have been closing up shop. This isn't just a problem for journalists themselves. Margaret Sullivan thinks there's something much larger at risk when reporters who expose wrongdoing by government and business don't have the backing of successful news organizations. You know, it's a lot easier to ignore a gadfly citizen as these folks might be seen rather than a big institution that's powerful. Democracy depends on citizens paying attention. Strong local news operations help citizens stay informed and hold officials accountable. Without good local journalism, corruption flourishes and citizens become more vulnerable. Margaret Sullivan is ringing alarm bells and she's hopeful. I think that the decline of local news is solvable. Margaret Sullivan is the media columnist for The Washington Post and formerly the public editor of The New York Times. Her new book is called Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy. I talked with her about the scale and seriousness of the collapse of local news and what can be done to fix it. 
Well, Margaret, thanks for joining us on Solvable. And let's talk first about the dimensions of this problem. There's no question that we are losing local newspapers. I think something close to 2,000, if I read that right in your book, have gone out of business in the past 15 years. And the ones that are, remain aren't exactly thriving. And of course, that matters a lot to us journalists. Those are our friends. That's you know the system we came up in. But why does this matter so much, as you say in, in the title of your book, to American democracy? It matters because while newspapers are certainly not the only way that people are informed about their communities and their public officials, they have been over time perhaps the key way that people get information about how their local governments are functioning and how communities have a base of uh, facts from which to operate. They may disagree on the facts or what to do about them, but they sort of have this shared substance that that makes sense to everybody. Um, as that has dwindled away, largely because of the dissolution of the underlying business model based on print advertising, largely, people are are less informed. People are uh, less civically engaged. And it it hurts the underlying, the underpinnings of, of the way our society and our government is supposed to function. So it's primarily an accountability problem, right? If simply put, if the press isn't watching, government officials can get away with more corruption, more mismanagement. I think you said it exactly right, Jacob. It is primarily an accountability problem. But I, I see another aspect to it, too, which I'd just like to mention, which is has nothing to do with really watchdog journalism or that accountability piece, which is that newspapers have traditionally been a way that communities help knit themselves together, whether it's uh, about coverage of concerts or restaurants or theater or interesting people or obituaries. It's sort of a village square for the community. That has nothing to do with whether the town council or the city council is mismanaging your tax dollars, but it does have to do with sort of cohesion within the community. So it's, it's both of those things and probably a bunch of others too. But why is it important that it's news organizations versus, you know, bloggers or people posting smartphone videos or tweeting about what's going on in their town or community? Why isn't citizen journalism the replacement for all this? Citizen journalism, if that's what we want to call it, is is part of the solution. Um, one of the things it can't do very well, though, is publicized to the same degree that a front page headline or a big homepage treatment can from the Chicago Tribune or the Sun-Times. You know, it's a lot easier to ignore a gadfly citizen as these folks might be seen yeah. rather than a big institution that's powerful. This has now become a problem of democracy and not just in the United States, of course, it's, it's going on around the world. So the question is, why is it happening? Is it mainly just that the ad dollars that used to support local news now go mainly to Google and Facebook? That's a huge part of it. It is, I would say, if you had to identify one reason for this, it does have to do with advertising. So, you know, in the old days, which aren't that long ago, the way newspapers supported themselves and their staffs was sort of two thirds advertising and one-third subscriptions. Um, now, interestingly, at places like the New York Times, which are doing well and are going to make it, 
um, they are able to get enough digital subscribers to, you know, really support the business. But for local newspapers, including the big regionals, there isn't enough, you know, there may not be enough um, audience there to buy those subscriptions to make up for the loss of ad dollars. And the ad dollars went away in part because print faded so much and digital advertising never measured up in the way that we hoped it would. You know, people talked about eventually when they figured it out, they started talking about print dollars and digital dimes. And that's the case. And also a lot of those dimes are going to the so-called duopoly of Facebook and Google, as you say. Um, So, Margaret, the top national news organizations seem to be doing pretty well. The New York Times, where you used to be the public editor, or the Washington Post, where you're the media critic now. Um, But a few years ago, things looked pretty bleak for them, too. So what can the next level of metropolitan news organizations learn from their turnaround, their success? Because the Times and the Post are adding journalists and increasing their journalistic footprint, even as the papers and cities a little smaller than that are drastically shrinking. Absolutely right. And uh, these are both interesting examples because both the New York Times and the Washington Post had some pretty rough years um, and not so long ago. But they have started concentrating on something new, um, not entirely new, but concentrating more deeply on digital subscribers, uh, people who are going to pay money to um, get their journalism. And so rather than concentrate on, you know, sort of this is the uh, layperson's way to say it, but clicks, rather than concentrate on clicks, which is a little bit more oriented towards, you know, the advertising end of things. Now, the emphasis is on really deepening a loyalty to the audience, the the readership, the viewer, whatever you want to call it, so that there's this sense of, yes, I really appreciate this work and I'm going to uh, put it on a renewable thing on my credit card so that uh, I keep getting the New York Times or the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. It is more challenging for the local and the regional outlets because they have a smaller you know, sort of universe to appeal to. The Times and the Post and the Wall Street Journal can, you know, be marketing themselves really globally. The Buffalo News, the Chicago Tribune, and sometimes probably aren't going to be able to do that because the content that they have that's that's different, uh, that makes them indispensable, is going to be local. Um, you know, so there's just, you know, there's a, there's a smaller sort of... Um, there's a smaller universe of possible subscribers out there. But, you know, the Boston Globe uh, has made real progress on this. The L.A. Times has made real progress on this. And um, there is reason to hope. Don't they all just need to get together in some way? I mean, on any given day, I may want to read a story in Cleveland or in Buffalo or in L.A. or in Chicago. But I don't go to those sites often enough that it would make sense for me living in New York to subscribe to any of them. But I'd gladly pay for a speed pass that let me you gave me access to all newspapers in the country and shared the shared the revenue with all of them. That seems like a good idea. I I haven't seen that developed, but I think it it has promise. And uh, I, I know a lot of people would feel the same way. It's like, I don't really want to subscribe to, you know, the uh, Toledo Blade, but there's this story I really want to read. So I'll use my, my past, you know. Um, 
I mean, I think that's worth exploring and maybe it has been explored. I have seen sort of the system of micropayments. Um, you know, you pay a tiny amount for this one story you want to read, sort of like you would with a music app. That has not seemed to do well or be very helpful. Let's talk about some of the other solutions and things you talk about in the book. One that a lot of people are very interested in is nonprofit models and philanthropic support. Um, I think one of the most successful new news organizations in the country is the Texas Tribune, um, which is based in Austin and probably covers government and politics in Texas better than the newspapers ever did in their heyday. And that's a nonprofit. So is that kind of model the, the solution to it? It's a solution without a doubt. Um, the Texas Tribune, and now the Texas Tribune is is working with ProPublica, which is another great digital investigative site that has more of a national point of view. And we do see them in many other communities. There's the Voice of San Diego. There's MinPost in Minneapolis. Um, the one I mentioned in Buffalo. It is, you know, it is difficult to make them scale to the point that newspapers w- were able to you know, to the, to that level. Um, I don't think that there probably will be a, a the a opportunity to put a nonprofit um, based on philanthropic or membership dollars in every small town that's lost a weekly. So scale is a, is a real, is a real problem and a real issue there, but where they do work, they're great. And they also tend to be more nimble and sometimes more aggressive, less hidebound, less um, willing to sort of kowtow to the local powers that be. They, they can really do some great work and they do. It's good not to be dependent on advertising, right? You don't have to think what the big local advertiser is going to think about your story. I mean, the money has to come from somewhere, but if it comes from a donors and foundations who care about the community, it's less likely that any one of them is going to try to exert a lot of control. Maybe. I mean, donors are human beings as well. And um, and sometimes in a community, the, the big donors are the same people that you might want to write a, a big investigative piece about. So, you know, and are you going to pull your punches because you don't want to mess with your, you know, your biggest contributor? Um, it did. It certainly was the case uh, at newspapers and may still be that, you know, you didn't really want to get the biggest car dealership in town very mad at you um, because they were, you know, they were contributing so much to the bottom line. But there always was a real separation between advertising and editorial in Buffalo. We we never saw an ad, you know, for a long time. It would be unheard of for an advertising salesman to, you know, even be in the newsroom. Now I think there's, you know, there's less of a separation between the money side and the journalism side. And I'm not suggesting that there's an integrity problem in these news organizations. I don't know of of one, but I, you know, I think that's something that has to be thought about. Yeah. I mean, what I've observed about the best of the nonprofits, the Texas Tribune, and as you say, nationally, ProPublica, is that they're really entrepreneurial. So they manage to be both nonprofit and be able to raise money and tax deductible money, but they also actually think like entrepreneurial businesses. That's 
great solution in a few cases, but that's very hard to scale. It's very hard to have, and as you say, compounded by the problem of of smallness with these really local sites. You know, how can they be enterprising businesses and raise philanthropic money and do their primary job of of covering government and covering the news? Right. I mean, I have talked with one uh, founder of a nonprofit who told me that they have had to fundraise to meet payroll uh, at times. And that's pretty scary. When you're trying to do journalism, then you have to kind of run out and make sure you can pay your reporters that week um, or next month. That's, uh, that's a tough thing. But, you know, speaking of the entrepreneurial spirit that you mentioned, absolutely true. The other thing that is happening more of necessity is collaboration between news organizations. You know, so now with statehouse coverage um, on the decline, there's uh, an outfit in Pennsylvania called Spotlight PA um, that has gotten a bunch of different news organizations, not just newspapers, but um, broadcast and radio together to combine and produce statehouse coverage that they can all use. These are places that probably would have been, you know, scoop happy with each other, trying to compete in the past, and now they're trying to collaborate. Um, it goes a little bit against the journalistic DNA, I think, um, to, to be so nice to the guy that used to be your competitor. But I, I think that's really an important part of what has to happen. Margaret, people talk about the idea of giving news organizations an antitrust exemption, which I understand to mean that they'd be allowed to all get together or make a deal among themselves and then say to Google and Facebook, here's the deal with all of us, or you get a deal with none of us. It's like, um, you know, a union sort of for organizations in a way. Um, baseball has an antitrust exemption. There are lots of examples of antitrust exemptions. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. I mean, it actually has to do with sort of the power in numbers instead of just this little organization trying to go up against these massive social media platforms or or search engines, you know, huge companies um, worldwide. It gives them some some solidarity and some ability to get together. Yeah. I mean, Facebook and Google are always making all this noise about how they want to support local journalism. And they're, you know, they seem to feel kind of guilty about accidentally destroying it. They didn't destroy it on purpose. It was a, it was a side effect of building their businesses. But did they, and thinking again about philanthropic solutions, I mean, is there separate from the idea of an antitrust exemption, you know, is there a way that they can be prevailed upon to support all this journalism, which they really need to exist? Google's a lot worse if all the newspapers go out of business. If they're forced to, they will. Um, You know, the things that they've done that have been voluntary, which I think are useful, good, and relatively small scale, (laughs) you know, have happened, you know, out of a sense of, you know, kind of managing the PR around it, I think, and maybe wanting to do the right thing. Um, The Google News Initiative has helped a bunch of different newspapers uh, figure out how to get digital subscriptions, and that's very positive. Uh, Facebook has changed its algorithm so that it it features uh, local news more and does reimburse some of them uh, more. You know, I, I don't think it's at the point that's going to save anything right now. Margaret, what about the idea of direct government support? I mean, that's an idea that we journalists would have just hated, you know, a a couple decades ago, but there doesn't seem to be a great alternative to it now. 
So the, the idea of direct government support is one that, as you say, you know, has been sort of a third rail for journalists. We just don't want to ever compromise our independence or our idea of our own independence by taking money directly from the government. But, um, you know, I think and others are beginning to think because we're in a more desperate straits now that this is something that bears a, a closer and a deeper look Um Nicholas Lemon, the Columbia uh, Journalism School former dean, who is the CEO of the publishing house that published my book, Columbia Global Reports, is farther along on this uh, spectrum than I am. And he he really believes that safeguards and guardrails can be built in so that independence would be preserved. It has to do with how it is set up and the extent to which there is true independence built in at the Voice of America, um, the Trump administration has really intruded there. It, it is worrisome. I mean, there, I, you know, there's a political appointee who's just been put in charge replacing a woman named Amanda Bennett, who was the editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, had his distinguished news career. You know, these are the kinds of things that can happen when there's government control. You go you go in the blink of an eye from journalism to propaganda, exactly. which looks like it's what's going to happen at, at Voice of America. Yes. So that's a real worry. And that's something that clearly needs to be foreseen and prevented. Yeah. So which of these solutions do you really want to place your bets on? I mean, this is an urgent problem. We're losing local news organizations every week. So I'm well aware that this is a solutions-oriented effort we're doing here, but I, I, I cannot say that I think there's one, one most promising solution. I think whatever happens and it has to be a combination of things and they don't really go together. It's got to be kind of a patchwork in which we encourage and support the nonprofits, in which people in communities recognize that they've got to support their their newspaper if if they want it to continue, um, public policy answers. So, you know, a lot of different things. And certainly the um, nurturing of, of nonprofits, both as these digital startups and also as newspapers begin in a very small way to start turning themselves into nonprofits as the Salt Lake Tribune just did. Um, you know, that has to be fostered and encouraged as well. So a bunch of different things and uh, a lot of crossed fingers and uh, maybe some prayers to St. Francis de Sales, the patron saint of journalists. <laughs> well, beyond prayers, you know, I wonder what people listening who are concerned about this problem, as I very much am, can do. I think you're probably going to say that the first thing is to support your local news organization. Um, but how can people do that and what else can they do? Well, they can support their news or local news organization most simply by subscribing, by saying, yeah, I wish it was better. I It used to be thicker. I liked it more when X columnist was there, but I'm still going to subscribe. So that's a really basic thing. And then I think to engage with it, to write a letter to the editor, to call the city editor and say, hey, you know, when you covered my town board meeting, you got this wrong. And then, you know, similarly, to be in touch with your local representatives in Congress and possibly at the state level to say, hey, local journalism really matters a lot to me. What are you doing about it? So I think all those things can be helpful. Margaret, thanks for joining us on Solvable. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
That was Margaret Sullivan. Her new book is Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy. Remember to check out our show notes for links to the suggestions our guests make about ways that you can get involved. Next week, my co-host Ann Applebaum talks with the linguist John McWhorter. He's someone who is attentive to the complexities of the spoken word, and he has some straightforward ideas about how to solve cancel culture. Please join us. Solvable is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our show is produced by Camille Baptista. Senior producer, Jocelyn Frank. Catherine Girardot is our managing producer. And our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Special thanks to Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Carly Migliori, and Khadija Holland. I'm Jacob Weisberg. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to luckylandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.